This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is March 2020. We're back again for another great month. Ryan, how you doing? Hey, fantastic. How are you? Good, good, good. Another month, another bunch of articles. You want to jump in? <laughs> another month, another podcast. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, let's just get right into it. So the first article from the uh, March issue that we're going to cover on the podcast is called Naloxone and Buprenorphine Prescribing Following U.S. Emergency Department Visits for a Suspected Opioid Overdose, August 2019 to April 2021. Our lead author here is Kao Ping Chua, and they're at the University of Michigan. So this is a quite simple review of the frequency with which emergency department visits for opioid overdose result in subsequent prescriptions for naloxone and buprenorphine. You know, two medicines repeatedly demonstrate to be protective against death and disability following an initial presentation for opioid overdose. In this trial or study, they used a retrospective cohort analysis uh, looking at Symphony Health's integrated dataverse, um, which is primarily a database evaluating pharmacy dispensing via pharmacy claims data covering uh, approximately 93% of U.S. dispensed prescriptions. And then they also incorporated a sample of emergency medicine visits to the 5,800 hospitals included in this database, and they collated those together and linked these subsequent prescriptions and dispensed uh, medications or buprenorphine and naloxone, and they did this during the time period of 2019 through 2021. As you can probably imagine, considering some of our prior articles uh, and in the context of those here on the podcast, the results are actually not that great. Out of 148,966 visits identified with an opioid overdose, these emergency department visits generated naloxone prescriptions 7.4% of the time and buprenorphine prescriptions 8.5% of the time. The authors used these same methods to generate a sort of comparative analysis using visits for anaphylaxis and epinephrine prescribing and found that epinephrine was prescribed in about 48% of visits for anaphylaxis. Then, overall, for all the prescriptions, about 5% of emergency department visits did not result in a subsequently dispensed medication. So these are fairly imprecise methods, and without the larger context, it's hard to say the absence of a prescription is clinically inappropriate because this is just linking claims data with visit diagnoses. It doesn't actually look at the specific causes or any of the context around the emergency department visit, but it rather defies belief that 90-odd percent of the time, a prescription for some sort of overdose treatment or overdose rescue would be inappropriate. Um, using the sort of comparative analysis for, with the anaphylaxis, that also is a little bit concerning that only 48% of those anaphylaxis visits generate a prescription for epinephrine uh, to follow up with, um, although you might say that some of these people already had it. So I think the better comparative is not so much 100%, but perhaps the 50-odd percent that the anaphylaxis is, but it's still not a very encouraging sign that we're missing all these opportunities to prevent further overdose deaths in the emergency department. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think our next article kind of lead into the fact that, you know, there's definitely room for improvement. You don't necessarily know if anaphylaxis is the best comparison. There's lots of other uh, boundaries or barriers to implementing, you know, uh, medical assisted therapy that's not there with simply writing someone a prescription for uh, uh, an EpiPen. But um, I certainly think this shows that there probably is some room for improvement here. How we actually do it, I think, 
the next article kind of gets into some of the concepts of, of how you can make these improvements. Um, and that's sustained implementation of a multi-component strategy to increase emergency department initiated interventions for opioid use disorder. And the lead author is Margaret Lowenstein. So as the previous article shows, there's obviously room for improvement in this area, but how you actually go about it um, is more of a question. And so these authors sought to describe the implementation of a multi-component strategy in three urban academic emergency departments. And essentially what this strategy was, um, was to improve the ability for emergency department physicians to treat these patients. And that was simply get more clinicians uh certified with X waivers so they actually could prescribe buprenorphine to patients in the emergency department with, with opiate-related visits. Um, and then one of the important steps is they integrated peer recovery specialists into the care, and they did this by having them available, one, and then having an automated alert, basically, that notifies the uh, peer recovery co specialists or coaches uh, of the presence of a patient, um, and they could look at their chart and go see the patient without the uh, emergency clinician actually having to... Um, to call them um, and actually consult them on the case. So uh, just more consistency with that uh, part of the, the, the treatment. Uh, and finally, there was a culture change to really um, promote the use of buprenorphine, uh, including out giving out badges to people uh, <laughs> that, that were uh, actually doing it and so on and so forth. Um, and essentially what they did is they conducted a retrospective analysis of their EHR um, of uh, adult patients presenting with opiate use disorder related visits, uh, prior to the implementation, which was March 2017 to November 2018, and then after, which is December 2018 to July 2020. And they looked at over 2,600 opiate-related visits during the study period. About 28% were for overdose, 8% were for withdrawal, um, and the rest were for other conditions. Um, Overall, 13% of these patients received uh, a medication for opiate use disorder during their ED visit. Following the implementation of this multi-component strategy, you saw a pretty significant increase in the amount of patients that received uh, medical-assisted therapy. Essentially, prior to the implementation, only about 3% of the patients received a prescription um, for medical-assisted therapy, um, whereas afterwards, 23% received either prescription or received uh, a dose of buprenorphine in the emergency department. And this was all basically buprenorphine. You saw no difference in the amount of methadone that was prescribed before and after the implementation, since makes, which makes sense since the strategy really focused on the use of both buprenorphine and got their emergency physicians both educated and trained to be able to uh, dispense it. Um, they did some uh, multi-patient level adjusted um, analyses and found the same thing, that there was an increase in the use of buprenorphine after the implementation. Um, and so, you know, I think it makes sense that when you give uh, providers the ability to prescribe it and the support to prescribe it and make sure the patient has follow-up afterwards, the usage is going to increase. Um, it would have been nice to see kind of more what happened to these patients afterwards, how many of them got a prescription, were there any actual outcome benefits, but obviously uh, just given the scope of the study, that wasn't possible. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pretty simple sort of before and after. When you when you add supports and change the culture, you can get physicians to do things that they didn't previously do. It's not this isn't rocket science necessarily, but it's interesting to see exactly the scope of it, and it's it's also you know pretty obvious uh, to see that you know between was zero some of the there were like you know seventy percent of them had increases, but uh, some of them still prescribed zero, <laughs> you know, even despite you know all these little rewards and uh, incentives and adding supports, and you still had people who just wouldn't come along, and this is just right in there with sort of like 
championing and culture change and you know that sort of that, those sorts of things uh, you know in all business aspects not just at the emergency department and i'm just you know this little window and it's a pretty long window you know we're all talking you know between 2018 and 2020 uh, it'd be interesting to see you know five years down the road if this is still a thing although emergency departments could have changed dramatically by then so uh, right. you know it's an interesting thing um and it just goes to show there is maybe a ceiling to it to some extent, a ceiling to the appropriateness of it. You know, tying back to that uh, previous article, we don't expect 100% of visits to the emergency department for opioid overdose to result in a prescription or buprenorphine administration. Uh, but there, you know, you know, there should be a larger percentage than, you know, 8 to 10% sort of thing. Right. And I think this shows that, you know, with, with some significant changes in practice, you can get some significant changes in, in outcomes. Yep. And we've seen this through antibiotic stewardship and all manner of right, different things, right. too. So. CT scanning, so on and so forth. <laughs> yes. So um, the next article from this uh, issue that we're going to talk about uh, is called Effectiveness of Peripheral Nerve Blocks for the Treatment of Primary Headache Disorders, the Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Lead author here is Dylan Patel, and they're at the University of Ottawa. Uh, and as you might expect, this is an article evaluating the efficacy of peripheral nerve blocks for headache in the emergency department, uh, an entirely different approach than our usual oral or intravenous analgesia. There have been a rather moderate number of small studies evaluating said approach, and so here we have the systematic review and meta-analysis. Their literature search identified 11 studies for inclusion, enrolling primarily those with episodic migraines. And the two approaches used primarily in these studies for peripheral nerve blocks were sphenopalatine ganglion and greater occipital nerve blocks. And the outcomes were pain at various time points between 1 and 30 minutes. So how do these peripheral nerve blocks work? These data and the authors conclude there's a benefit associated with the block, basically an advantage of about 1.2 pain units, you know, on those ordinal scales that go from 1 to 10 for pain. And they sort of generally, you know, in their narrative conclusion, say they ought to be considered as an adjunctive therapy. However, these pooled studies are replete with problems. A fair number of these studies are at moderate to high risk of bias. Several of them are simply comparing the intervention against a placebo control and only a couple against an actual sham injection. Few studies actually use an active comparator of an appropriate headache-directed analgesia, and then some of those which did showed no difference. There's underreporting of adverse effects, and there's really not a limited data on the durability of the treatment effect. Effectively, rather than supporting the use of uh, these nerve blocks, this article tells us mostly the weakness of the evidence surrounding peripheral nerve blocks for the treatment of acute headache in the emergency department. It's likely to be generally harmless, but we have several known effective alternatives for the treatment of primary headache in the emergency department. It's always good to have one more thing to try in a patient failing other therapies or with contraindications, but I wouldn't endorse this as a routine treatment. Benjamin Freeman, an author of some of the articles included in the meta-analysis, discusses some of these same concerns in his editorial. Broadly speaking, he is encouraged by the growing use of regional anesthesia in the emergency department, but notes the many questions remaining to be addressed with respect to headache. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, of, uh, you know, if you're very generous... I'm glad look, you think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing that. <laughs> so validating. You know, every once in a while, our views align. Um, you know, like, if you're, like, super generous with this data, the best thing you could come up with is there's a small difference in the pain score that skirts at the level of minimally important difference, right? Like, the point where it actually makes a difference and the patient will know a difference, that's what you're seeing. And, you know, normally in most studies, it's thought to be around 1.2 or 1.3. Three. And so 
if you're really, really generous, if you're comparing this to a placebo without a sham, that you might maybe potentially see a tiny difference. I'm just not sure what the point is. We have so many good treatments for headache, <laughs> you know, like we have so many things that we know work fairly well that I would want to see much better data before I started using this. Um, and I guess it is nice to have, you know, a third or fourth line agent in your back pocket for really refractory headaches. But I got to say, I very rarely get there. Most headaches are really treatable with pretty straightforward medications. Yeah, I mean, I, I like this idea. It would be really convenient if there was a really obvious place that you could just inject in the you know the posterior scalp and a lot of people's headaches just magically disappeared, uh, which obviously sounds too good to be true. Yes. <laughs> it would be you know, non-sedating and it would just be, you know, you wouldn't have to have an intravenous line. Your length of stay would be a lot shorter. Um, and so I'm, I'm more than happy to see continued large, high-quality studies in this area. Um, in the meantime, we have, like you said, plenty of other options. Exactly. All right. So our next article, covert brain infarctions in emergency department patients, prevalence, clinical correlations, and treatment opportunities. And the lead author is Jessica Balderston. So we all see covert brain infarctions daily in the emergency department. You get a CT of a patient's head for whatever reason, and you see evidence of a prior stroke, but the patient has no residual symptoms consistent with those strokes locations. Not surprisingly, the evidence suggests that patients with a history of stroke, silent or otherwise, have a higher risk for repeat strokes. So these authors suggest that identifying and intervening on these lesions might improve patients' outcomes downstream. So they conducted a retrospective analysis of patients uh, older than 50 who underwent CT of the head and were then discharged from the emergency department um, from January to September of 2018. Uh, the patients with a history of stroke or prior brain imaging with ischemia were excluded from this analysis. And they basically looked to see what happened to these patients during their ED stay. They included over 800 patients. The average age was 62. 50% of the patients were women. Covert brain infarcts were present in 11% of these patients. Only 9% of the patients with covert brain infarctions were clearly made aware of their findings. Of the patients with covert brain infarctions, 27% were already on aspirin and 28% were on a statin. Aspirin was only added to two patients and stats were started to no patients. Blood pressure medication was again added to only two patients with covert brain infarction. There was a neurological consult for 9% of the patients with covert brain infarctions. So, you know, obviously here, like our first article, uh, there may be some work to do. I, I think the big limitations here is this was a chart review. And so when we say only 9% were made aware of the infarct, that means 9% in the chart were documented that the patient was made aware. Same for medication. When we say only a few patients started on medication, that means only a few patients had medication started in their chart. More importantly than all this stuff is the question is, does any of this make a difference downstream? Do we actually make difference in patient outcomes when we start treating them from the emergency department or uh, getting neurological consults, or are we just kind of making our job more complicated than it has to be? Yeah, I think that's a that's a difficult question because I think, you know, if any of these patients had been admitted to the hospital for their primary stroke before finding their covert stroke or brain infarction, you know, on follow-up imaging, they would have likely been started on a statin and lifelong aspirin therapy, you know, various secondary preventions or had an echocardiogram and started on something else if they had found, you know, atrial fibrillation or some other, you know, paroxysmal event. So, I mean, 
the magnitude of the effect size for all of these different sort of, you know, primary or secondary preventions for stroke is quite tiny, but it exists enough that, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a big deal. Um, dis- strokes are disabling, uh, you know, and the medications, you know, are you know, pervasive throughout, you know, our, you know, medicine. So it's, it's definitely not something that's uh, you know, very prominent in our, you know, thinking when we're, you know, you know, evaluating somebody for whatever their acute complaint is, and we just happen to find an incidental, you know, brain infarction sort of finding. Um, but you could make the argument that we probably should consider it uh, in some fashion, or at least, uh, at least inform the patients. If we're not going to take an action, at least do something, like you said, this the chart review doesn't necessarily catch all the documentation, but I don't think there's a whole lot of people documenting that they've told the patient, you know, telling the patient that they've had this previous brain infarction and trying to get them some coordinated information about follow-up without having documented as well. So I think this is probably underappreciated. There's a lot of steps between appreciating it in the emergency department and actually affecting a patient's final outcome, Uh, but it's probably something that we should probably be thinking about a little bit more than we currently are. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd like to see a little more data on this. I think I think there is a leap between connecting the benefit of aspirin and medical therapy in people that present with stroke-like symptoms and, and had a TIA, and then you find a, a, an infarct on CT versus a whole bunch of people that are getting head CTs for other reasons, and you find old silent infarcts. Um, that's never been studied. We don't know the effect. We don't know what the number needed to treat it is in that patient population. Yeah, as we see with all these kind of treatments, you'd have to invest a decent amount of resources in making this thing happen. Um, and I think I'd like to see a little more meaningful outcomes before before that make, before we actually start investing those resources. No, you know, I agree. I just think about like the work that Bori Kia does up at the at Orient Health Sciences University, where she's doing a lot of work at uh, making sure that people initiate you know anticoagulant therapy for atrial fibrillation that's picked up in the emergency department and actually go through that process. And I think people generally think that that's a good idea when you make a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in somebody in the emergency department and they're not currently on anticoagulation and you risk stratify them and have a conversation and start them on an anticoagulation. That, that's generally thought to be a good protective intervention that we can start in the emergency department. Uh, and this feels similar um and then maybe it needs you know somebody a, a good you know pi to go through and to do the same things that bori's done up at ohsu and go through uh you know the process of starting you know putting a putting a culture process in place and putting the interventions in place and actually trying to measure some outcomes uh so but uh, i i am a little bit more interested in you know in doing this than i than i was before reading this article for sure yeah i i suppose i i think if you look at like the history of emergency medicine doing primary care um, and all the data on this shows that it is somewhat futile, whether it's asthma, whether it's starting anticoagulation. Or in buprenorphine. Buprenorphine slightly different. But in the end, if you don't have a primary care physician to follow up, what you've done in the emergency department is futile. And in the end, if you do have an, uh, a primary care physician to follow up, what you've done in the emergency department is futile. Now, this is slightly different, right? Because you've identified something that is novel to this emergency department visit. We essentially treat, can treat it, currently treat it as a non-finding. Would it make a difference if we just have them go follow up with their primary care doctor for this finding? Maybe. Um, but you know what happens most of the time is you do your wet read. You don't see anything that you were concerned about on that CT scan. The patient gets sent home, and then the formal read 24 hours later gets put in as a silent stroke. So are you going to have some kind of follow-up process implemented that wouldn't be the primary physician treating for the patient, but would actually go kind of notify that patient and get them the follow-up they need? 
So for those of you practicing in health systems where it's not quite so futile, <laughs> patients actually have access to primary care. Perhaps this is something that can be integrated into your practice because patients just aren't lost. Uh, but yes, in the United States where, again, you know, people are not either not engaged with their primary care clinicians or just don't have them or, you know, they have the fragmented care model that we, you know, we're all used to in the, in the United States, then yes, perhaps there, there's a lot of barriers to implementing this in a, in a, in a way that actually improves individual patient outcomes. In the end, we just have to have get better healthcare here. I think is what is what what the key is. All right. So, um, next little article we're going to talk about from this uh, issue is called "Implementation of a Urinary Tract Infection Management Pathway to Evaluate Emergency Department Length of Stay in a Pediatric Emergency Department." Lead author here is Julie Fermick, and they are at Atrium Health Carolina's Medical Center. Um, and uh, this is uh, kind of like a previous studies, a little bit of a straightforward before and after study that shows exactly what you'd probably expect. Switching to a point of care urine dip is faster than sending the urine to the lab for microscopy. Uh, these authors simply describe their routine practice change, taking 118 patients who underwent urine microscopy prior to practice change and compared them with 97 patients who underwent urine dip after practice change. The primary outcome was length of stay, which, ta-da, was improved by 36 minutes by not having to wait for the urine to get lost on the way to the lab. So <laughs> I don't really have a whole lot else to say about this, <laughs> other than that the, the big drawback of this study, if there is one, would be safety. Um, you know, positive urine cultures, though, were extremely rare, on the order of about 8% in each cohort in the study, such that the estimates for the you know, sensitivity and specificity for both urine microscopy and urine dip have massively wide confidence intervals. Um, and, you know, then considering the imprecision inherent in these data, it's likely the urine dip is still not quite as accurate as a study as a microscopy, which is not news to anyone. Um, and depending on the pathways in place, the risk to individual patients for misdiagnosis is then quite low. Uh, and when relevant, as most emergency departments already have, there should be some appropriate safety netting in place for follow-up urine culture results regardless. Um, so yes, uh, point of care testing is faster than lab testing. Um, and it's, it's probably similarly safe. Yeah, I think, you know, when when you have a test, you don't often require to order. <laughs> Doing it point of care works much better than sending it to the lab. Um, I think this is probably the take home message here. So and it saves 36 minutes, which doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. That sounds like a very reasonable no, amount of time sounds, to save. That probably sounds exactly right. <laughs> um all right, moving on. Uh, our yep. next article is Pediatric Traumatic Injury Emergency Department Visits and Management in U.S. Children's Hospitals from 2010 to 2019. And the lead author is Lois K. Lee. So these authors wanted to see how the epidemiology and treatment of pediatric head trauma has changed over the course of a 10-year period. They conducted a retrospective descriptive analysis of pediatric health information system databases, including 33 U.S. children's hospitals. Um, and this was including patients aged 0 to 19 uh, from the time span of 2010 to 2019. Uh, specifically, they examined the prevalence of trauma-related ED visits, ED disposition, advanced imaging used, and trauma care costs. And so what they found was trauma-related visits uh, increased slightly from 2010 at about 16.3% to 18.1% in 2019. Hospitalization rates actually decreased over this time, um, and that might be because imaging actually also increased over this time in, in the form of MRI. There was an increase in the use of MRI over, the, over that nine-year period um, and an increase in cervical spine imaging as well. Um, and total 
trauma, uh, total trauma costs decrease, probably given the fact that they weren't admitting as many patients. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think this is a fairly straightforward epidemiological study. Um, obviously, it has all the um, flaws in, in this kind of study design and all the, the risks of bias. Um, but I think it makes sense. I think uh, we are imaging more of these patients, admitting less of them over this time period. And I think that's probably a reasonable take home from this study. Yeah, I mean, imaging more patients and admitting fewer of them is, is both good and bad, uh, <laughs> as you might expect. Um, but uh, so for anybody practicing emergency medicine, you know, imaging more patients and admitting fewer of them is exactly what we've been doing. So this obviously has face validity. I would have thought that uh, yeah, I wouldn't have expected quite so much difference between 2010 and 2019, because I feel like imaging was pretty prevalent by 2010 already. Um, I, I would like to see more ultrasound use, and I'd probably still like to see more observation than imaging. But uh you know, I, there, there's harms and costs associated with hospitalization, and uh, you know, there, there's a there's a, a, a certain amount of harm associated with the CT scan, but then early diagnosis and early intervention, there's is a balance. Um, so I, I think we could, I think this is still a very fertile and interesting area to keep on monitoring and observing and studying and making sure we're doing the right thing um, and not overusing imaging in children, which I think we we tend to still. Um, but uh, uh, you know, this is an interesting report to put it mildly. Yeah, I mean, I think children are the only the only place where we still actually think about imaging. Adults, yeah. there's no question; they just get imaged. <laughs> um, I think part of the increase in imaging here is is just the increase uh, the increase in availability of MRI, right? Just the fact that that so many more places can get it so much easier now, and so I think more children are receiving MRIs, whereas before they would be getting observation. Yes. So, and, and MRIs are you know they're they're expensive and resource intensive, but they are they're at least better for children. Yeah. Yes. Uh, moving right along to our last article, the uh, another trauma-related one. This one is called Traumatic Brain Injury-Related Hospitalizations and Deaths in Urban and Rural Counties, 2017. <laughs> the lead author here is Jill Dougherty, and they're at the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. And this is a study broadly looking at the differences in rates of hospitalization and rates of death for patients presenting with traumatic brain injury, specifically trying to parse out this sort of urban slash rural divide. To some extent, sustaining an injury in a rural area far from neurosurgical and critical care resources ought to potentially result in an increased risk for death, and thus the sort of hypothesis at face validity these authors set out to address. Using the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project's National Inpatient Sample and the Centers for Disease Control estimates for the rate of hospitalization for brain injuries sustained in a rural setting and the rate of hospitalization for brain injuries sustained in an urban setting, um, and then whether the brain injuries resulted in death. Um, and so these data sort of support the line of investigations the authors start out with. The rate of hospitalization per 100,000 persons is higher in urban areas than in rural, 70 per 100,000 annually versus 61 per 100,000 annually. But the rate of death is much higher for those patients with rural addresses, 27.5 per 100,000 versus 17.4 per 100,000. Um, and then, you know, as you might imagine, mechanisms of injury are a little bit different between each group, with falls being primarily overrepresented in the urban cohort compared to a rural cohort. Um, but as you can imagine, there's just so many limitations with respect to these data, including lacking information on the location of the actual injury event, as opposed to the patient's address, compared with the subsequent hospitalization, as well as the lack of a 
like a really a true systematic registry of all head injuries presenting to the emergency department and not just these sort of like hospitalization rates, um, which could result in underreporting across the data set. So these are these are probably uh, they probably support uh, an, a possible urban rural divide with respect to survival from traumatic brain injuries, which you know sort of has a face validity, but it's it seems it's very weak data. Um, uh, but it's definitely worth a further evaluation of true differences, um, and then whether that difference is actually amenable to any potential mitigation. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think you can make much of this data. I think that there's so many, there's so many risks of bias here that that it's hard to really know. You know, the biggest one being just like the mechanism of injuries are totally different, and you know, and and some of them can lead to much worse outcomes than than others. Um, being that half my job is is being an intensivist, and and a lot of that time is spent, you know, taking in these these uh, devastating brain injuries from from more rural parts of the states around us. I, I'd like to believe this is true. I just don't, I'm just not sure if you could say it from this data. Yeah. And then, I mean, even when you do make this sort of a report and you do say, if you do have better quality data and you do have a systematic registry of every single patient presenting with a head injury, whether they're subsequently hospitalized, whether they're dead, you know, whether they eventually have a death or a disability related to their brain injury. And, and there is a true urban rural divide. Even then, what do you, do about it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, try, try, I mean it, you do what they did here, right? You transfer most of these patients. Bypassing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a challenging. I mean, you, you just, there are just literally, ge there are just geographic differences that, uh, that make things incredibly challenging to, to, to address. Yeah. I mean, I think in the end, you know, the, this article showed, I mean, most of the bad brain injuries got transferred to a, an urban, you know, quaternary care center in the end anyway. And I think that's what you end up doing once you've identified the the patients uh, that would benefit from it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, bypassing, um, bypassing more local hospitals, uh, you know, uh, in the ambulance, but before, before an evaluation is done is going to lead to so much over triage. I think you still, you know, transfer once you've identified injuries that would benefit from quaternary care, but, um, Oh yeah, Even and we've that. done an article about that. We've done an article where they bypassed. You know, they looked at the over, so the over triage from you know pre-hospital care from like I don't know five or six years ago. And yeah. It was like in you know in either Arizona or I think I think it was in Arizona where they did that something like that, a study like that. Um, and yes, you just end up you know, massively over triaging patients in the pre-hospital setting, and there's no clear clear benefit to outcomes. Right. Yeah. And that, that happens every time just because our, our triage models are built to, you know, be very sensitive and not very specific. And so I, I think we still have to rely on the local hospitals to identify the, the patients that would benefit. Um, but even then, even when you use the local hospitals, you identify the sickest patients that would benefit from care. We don't have any data that transferring them actually helps the patients. Hmm. <laughs> Well then, yeah. <laughs> on that bombshell, <laughs> the, the fact that we've transferred hundreds of thousands of patients annually for no clear improvement in outcomes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it. I don't think it stands just with traumatic brain injury. I think you can, you can say that about many, many diseases yeah. <laughs> that we treat currently in our modern healthcare system. Unfortunately, it's hard to predict who's not going to benefit specifically, um, yeah. but maybe the, those models are coming up uh, and whether they'll have clinical acceptability or not is another, and uh, cultural acceptability is another thing entirely. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll review more of these going forward. Hmm. All right. All right. On that note, that wraps up another month of the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. Added always. Uh, any questions, comments, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asap.org. Yeah. As always, with any questions, comments, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asap.org. 
Until next month, this was Ryan Redecki and Rory Spiegel, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.